So this morning is a Text in Church Sunday. If you'd like to ask questions, uh, there's a, a phone number in the bulletin. There's going to be a phone number on each of the slides. But uh, basically, you just send a text question in. And uh, my daughter, Emily, she's going to get up and go man the computer in a little bit. She's going to take those questions and try to consolidate them. So if there's a couple questions that are similar, she's going to turn them into one question and forward it to me up here. And at the end of the sermon, myself and Russell and John, three elders, We'll sit up here and we'll take those questions and try to answer them for you. Because we're doing that, trying to shorten the sermon a little bit this week and make time for that question and answer time at the end. If you are a guest with us this morning, you're coming in in, right in the middle of a short series on church discipline, which may or, not be, may or may not be something that's familiar to you. It's the idea of God using the members of the church to discipline and shape each other. And it's, it's a... It's not something that's fun to talk about, but God has a few passages of Scripture that deal directly with this, and uh, we've been mostly working through Matthew 18, 15 through 20, these last few weeks. Next week, we're going to deal primarily with uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and then there are a few other passages that, that mix in there together. But this is the third week of our Matthew 18, 15 through 20 section. And we've dealt with kind of the real concrete examples, what we're supposed to do, the commands. Now we're going to deal with the last three verses of it, which are the hardest to understand, but they're key to understanding the whole thing. You can ask questions about what we're talking about today or anything to do with church discipline. So it could be the last few sermons or something that you anticipate we're going to talk about in the future, church discipline related, text your questions in, and we will do our best to answer them for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this chance to come and place ourselves under the authority of your word. We recognize that you are the Lord of the universe, and we want to yield our lives to you so that we are living with you as the Lord of our lives. We know that you have given us your word as the authoritative communication from you to us. We trust it. Lord, we want to be shaped by it. We want to be confronted and challenged in our sin. We want to be called to holiness. We want to walk away from the old and embrace our new life in you. So Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts and our minds now, that you would help us to understand what it is that you've written to us, uh, what it it means and why it matters for our life today. So work in our hearts, shape us more into your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Owen, <laughs> Owen's going to do some hiccuping. Um, I tried to tell you guys last night when Owen was coming home from the hospital, um, but the, the service that we used to broadcast emails to everybody, it was down last night. Couldn't use it. So uh, Owen and Jen came home last night after going in last Sunday and being at Children's Hospital that whole time. Those of you guys who know Owen, you know he's got lots of problems. They all go back to the fact that he suffered traumatic brain damage as a six-week-old. And uh, basically, all kinds of tests again this week, and, and no answers other than his brain is damaged, and it does weird things. So we are thankful that he's home, and uh, he just continues to be a mystery to us. So he's going to hiccup probably through the whole sermon. <laughs> No, not at all. Not at all. All right. What is church? Is it a building where religious services take place? Is it a group of people 
that share generally the same religious beliefs, and they come together in order to encourage people and to grow in their faith? Is it a service organization for the relieving of suffering in the world, serving the poor, the needy, the hungry, etc.? Is a church a dispenser of religious goods and services available to meet the needs of its customers? Is it a spiritual family meant to love and support each other? Is it a training organization to mobilize people to do the work of ministry? To some degree, a church is all of those things, and it is also more. Today, I want you to think about church as something different than all of those. I want you to think about church as an outpost of the kingdom of God, or we would say an embassy. If you were in a foreign country, you could go to the U.S. Embassy in order to get help. So if you lost your passport, you could go to the U.S. Embassy. They'd help you get a new passport or whatever else you you need. If you were running from the law, you could run into the U.S. Embassy, and they would at least temporarily protect you because you would be essentially on U.S. soil surrounded by another country. And the laws of the U.S. and the authority of the U.S. and the protection of the U.S. would all be, all be applicable to you there. It'd be like you were in your home country even though you weren't. If you were an ambassador to another country on behalf of the U.S., you would work in the embassy, but your primary role would be to represent or reflect the country that sent you. So, If you were sent as an ambassador of the United States, the way that you interacted with the locals would reflect on the United States. Your values, your character, your words, your actions, they would not only represent you, they would represent the country that sent you. What the locals thought of your country would be dictated by what they thought about you. This is a picture of the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine, at least the way it looked a few months ago. Notice the high fence around it. The little piece of real estate here is an extension of the sovereign country of the United States, and it is a place of refuge for the citizens of the United States, but it is not open to anyone. There's a fence for a reason. There are guards, soldiers for a reason. There are rules, there are lines, there are boundaries for a reason. It may seem obvious, but I'll just state it anyway. Without the fence, without the guards, without the rules that say who is allowed in and who is not, the embassy cannot function as an embassy. Because an embassy functions to represent the country that established it. Citizens of that country, and most especially ambassadors of that country, represent that country. If you took away those those boundaries, the fence and the guards and everything, and anybody could just walk in. Let's say Russian President Vladimir Putin could walk in and turn on the TV cameras and say, I am now a citizen of the United States because I'm in the U.S. Embassy, and I'm going to speak on behalf of the United States as an ambassador of the United States, and I'm going to let the world know that the United States is going to donate all of their nuclear weapons to Russia. Thank you. Have a good day. And he turns off the TV. With, without controls... Something, probably not that ridiculous, but ridiculous could happen. We need to know who are the citizens and the ambassadors of the country to know who is allowed to represent the country in an embassy. Citizenship matters. 
only those who should be able to represent the country can represent the country. I want you to think of the church in this way. Now, God rules over his whole kingdom, over all of the universe, everything that's created, everything that exists, God is the sovereign ruler over it. But inside of the whole sphere of the cosmos is this smaller kingdom ruled temporarily by Satan. Jesus refers to Satan as the prince of this world or the the ruler of this world. Now, if you have been born again, adopted into the family of God, and you're still living here on earth, then you're a stranger and an alien, to use the words of the Bible, living in a land that is not your home. In fact, you're in hostile territory. But more than that, more than a citizen living in a land that's not your home, you are, if you're a Christian, you are an ambassador of the kingdom of God, living temporarily and representing in this world the kingdom that is your true home. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God, and we are sent on a mission to represent the kingdom in this world. So your values your character, your words, and your actions don't just represent you, they represent your king and his kingdom. Let's sink in. It's a, it's a heavy thought. Our church is meant to be an outpost, an embassy of the kingdom of God. And if you're a member of ECC, then you officially represent our church to the world. And you officially represent God's kingdom to the world. If you were an ambassador to a foreign country, you would take that seriously, I hope. pray that you will take also just as seriously, more seriously, the fact that you are an ambassador of the kingdom here in this world. Today, we're going to talk through some of these tough passages in Matthew 18 and also in Matthew 16. And it goes back to this idea of us as ambassadors and our church as an embassy and who represents God. I would be pretty upset if a murderer on his way to the electric chair said to the TV cameras, I am so proud of all the murders I committed. I don't regret them at all. And I am so proud to be a member in good standing at Versailles Christian Church. That, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't work, right? We don't want a murderer on his way to an unrepentant death to represent us. Neither would God want somebody in that situation representing him. We need to take our ambassadorship seriously. Now, when we think about being ambassadors, if we think about it in a worldly sense, it's a position of great power and influence. Uh, there's probably a lot of benefit that goes with it. Maybe you get to go along with royal entourages in the company, in the country that you're a part of, there's probably a lot of wealth and power and all that kind of stuff attached to it. That is not the case as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, though. When the Apostle Paul refers to himself as an ambassador in Ephesians 6, this is what he says. I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it, that is the gospel, that I may declare the gospel boldly as I ought to speak. Paul's literally in chains at that point. He's in prison because of his 
ambassadorial, if that's the word, role as a missionary, as a herald of the kingdom, he's in prison. If you are an ambassador of the kingdom of God, it is not a role of high honor and others bowing down to you. It is a a role of service and a role of sacrifice. Probably none of us in this room will end up in chains like Paul, but our lives are called to be lives of service and sacrifice as ambassadors. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. 15 through 20. This is on page 823 if you're looking at one of the Black Pew Bibles. As you're finding that, let me just state what I hope you guys will come away with today. As ambassadors of Christ, I hope that you will see clearly the call of God on your life for holiness. That God calls you and calls us as a church to be holy, to be pure, to be Christ-like in a world that is corrupt. We've been working through this sixth verse passage of Matthew 18. The first section gave us the real concrete examples. What do we do if one of us is sinning? God takes sin seriously. He wants to use us to address sin in each other's lives. What do we do? We see a brother sinning in some particular way. What are we to do about it? And this is what Jesus himself says. These are his words. Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So we've worked that through for the last few weeks. Someone is sinning. Someone is claiming to be a brother in Christ is sinning. You are to go to that brother privately, confront them in their sin, call them to repentance. If he refuses, he takes them back up, confront them in his sin, call them to repentance reconciliation, restoration. If he refuses to listen to you and your backup, tell it to the church. We talked about that last week. If he refuses to even listen to the church, then treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector. We talked in detail last week about what that means. And if you missed that, I hope you go back and watch or listen to that message. Because the, the idea of treating someone like a Gentile or a tax collector, there's actually a beautiful gospel message embedded in that. Because how did Jesus treat the Gentiles and the tax collectors? He loved them. He gave his life for them. He invited them into relationship with him. He also recognized, though, that as unrepentant, unconverted Gentiles or tax collectors, they are outside the family of God. And that is how we are then to treat someone who has been confronted multiple times in these different stages and refuses to turn from his sinful ways. We are to love them, reach out to them, serve them, even offer our lives for them, and to do so considering them outside the family of God. Jesus doesn't tell us to be rude to them, to talk badly about them, to shun them, to gossip about them, to have nothing to do with them. If you see them across the street, to not just turn away and, and not even 
not even wave to him. He doesn't tell us those things, but he does intend for us to treat them differently than we did before this happened. Now, if you're not up to speed, haven't listened through the last few sermons about this, this could sound pretty harsh to you, pretty judgmental. Am I saying that somehow by doing this process and then getting to the end of the process and saying, well, I guess we have to treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector, am I saying that, that we are essentially pronouncing a judgment on this person and saying, you're not a Christian? We, we thought you were, but you're not a Christian. Are we cursing them and damning them to hell? Not exactly. But what we are saying is, based on this person's refusal to repent, to turn away from their sin, turn in repentance and faith back to Christ, to be reconciled to the body of the church, based on that refusal, the fruit of their life is telling us what kind of tree they are. Are there apples growing on that tree or are there oranges growing on that tree? What kind of tree is it? And based on the fruit, we can recognize what kind of tree it is and therefore know how to treat and care for that tree. Now these final three verses of the passage are the toughest to understand, but they will help us get the main point of this passage. Verse 18, Jesus continues, Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now we don't talk about this. We don't talk this way today. We don't say binding and loosing very much. What is this talking about? This is the idea of having your sin bound, stuck to you, tied to you, stapled to your forehead. Your sin, if you're bound in your sin, you're trapped in your sin, you're stuck in your sin, you are bound by it. If you're loosed from your sin, you are free, you are forgiven, you are no longer captive to it. You've dropped it on the ground and you've walked away. This is speaking of your state of your eternal soul. Are you still an enemy of God, bound in your sin, or are you a child of God, freed from your sin, and now a member of his family? This is really the most important statistic about you. Who cares how tall you are, how much you weigh, how fast you can run, what your GPA was in high school, how much you make, how expensive your house was? That stuff doesn't matter. The most important thing about you is, are you still trapped, bound in your sin and an enemy of God? Or through the gracious, sacrificial death of Jesus, by coming to him in repentance and faith, have you been born again, made new, set free from your sin? These verses seem to be suggesting that the church has some kind of role in determining or labeling or recognizing whether or not you are, in fact, a child of God. And I wonder if that makes you nervous. Because we tend to think of our faith as a private thing. It's just between me and God. And yet, as we read this section of Matthew 18, there's nothing private about this. 
We get to verse 19, we've got this two or three of us. If we agree on anything, God will do it for us. What, what is that? Is this some kind of name it and claim it thing? Like you and I get together and we say, we're going to agree, we're going to ask God to pay off the mortgage for the church building or pay off all of our individual mortgages or heal Owen's brain. And if, if we agree and we ask God and we claim this verse, does it mean God has to do it for us? We are not Lord over God. He is Lord over us. If you take this verse out of context, which is often done, then you can twist it around and try to make that claim. But if you go through life with your two buddies agreeing together, making demands of God and expecting him to do it, you're going to figure out pretty quickly that it just doesn't work. That God does not do our bidding. He is the sovereign ruler. We are not. And then verse 20 is confusing too because isn't God omnipresent? He's everywhere. There's no place you can go to hide from God, right? And if you're a Christian, then the Holy Spirit of God has come to dwell inside of you permanently. You can't hide from him. He's inside of you. You can't be separated from him. Jesus himself promises in the Great Commission that he will be with us wherever we go our whole lives. He'll never leave us. So we've got the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all three members of the Trinity, saying that they're with us all the time. So how can Jesus say, when you're gathered in my name, I'm with you? Of course, of course he's with us, right? These are confusing things. We have to understand them through the context of the verses before them. These aren't just sitting out there in space by themselves as universal declarations. These are sent, sent to us within the context of the verses before them. Jesus is specifically talking about disciplining people who are claiming to be in the church, but their unrepentance is showing that they are not really part of the church. Through the tree is identifying the tree, and Jesus is saying these things within this context. Jesus is saying that he's, he's giving authority and responsibility to the church to declare together based on the person's refusal to repent. As far as we can tell, they're not part of the church. That their sins are still bound on them. We thought they were forgiven. The fruit of their life in this situation is saying otherwise. That should feel really heavy. I think that's what Jesus is saying to us here. I think that's, that's the point of this passage. Now, there's another passage in Matthew that sounds almost the same as this. In fact, some of the phrasing is word for word exactly the same. It's back in Matthew 16. Starts with verse 13. So if you want to flip backwards, page 822, Matthew 16, 13, we're going to see this. Of the four gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus only uses the word church twice, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Now, through the rest of the New Testament, there's lots of information about the church. But in those four gospel books, Jesus only says church twice. We would think that those might be really important things for us to understand then as a church. So, we've read Matthew 18. Let's look at Matthew 16, 
just two chapters before it. Could have been months before it, though, in the timeline. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's his label for himself. Who do people say that I am? And they say, some say John the Baptist, who was dead at that point. Others say Elijah, who had been dead for quite a while at that point. Or Jeremiah, also dead for quite a while. Or one of the prophets. So it seems that the consensus is Jesus is some dead guy who has come back and doing miraculous things. That's what they're saying. That's the the crowd's consensus. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And I don't know if there was a pause there, and they're kind of elbowing each other. I don't want to answer. Or maybe Simon just jumps right in. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. It's the Greek word for Messiah, the, the Savior, the Anointed One. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And we think, Peter, way to go. You got it right. You don't see Peter getting it right very often in the early years. And this is, this is the high point for his life. Jesus praises him. He even says, like, God the Father has revealed this to you, Peter. You are the mouthpiece of God when you say this. He nailed it. And look how Jesus addresses him. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon's its first name. Bar-Jonah just means son of Jonah. That's how he did last names back then. So, you are Simon, son of Jonah, he says. And then in verse 18, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter. That's how he gets his second name. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, what we don't see in the English here is two similar forms of a single word. We've got the name Peter, which Jesus uses the Greek word Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S. And that's the idea of a little rock, or a stone, or a pebble. So I... Got this from one of my girls. This is a, a Lake Superior rock from one of our vacations. I don't know if you guys have kids that like to bring rocks home from vacations. We have lots of rocks we've brought home from different places. Some of them we just throw out into the flower bed at different points. Otherwise, they just keep piling up. So this would be like the word Peter, Petra, a little rock. You are Little Rock, he says. So move to Arkansas. He says, you are Little Rock. You are Peter. And then he says, on the big rock, different form of the same word, Petra, big rock, boulder, outcrop, on this big rock, I will build my church. You are Little Rock. On the big rock, I will build my church. I may have shown you guys these pictures before. A few years ago, we were in uh, New Hampshire in the White Mountains. Beautiful place. Lots of big rocky outcrops, right? And uh, sometimes, back when there were giant glaciers covering this land, big chunks of rock like this would get broken off and carried on top of the glaciers and deposited somewhere else. It's called a glacial erratic. There are some around here. If you know a farmer who's got a big rock in the middle of their field that they didn't put there, it's because a glacier dropped it thousands of years ago. A lot of times around here, they max out at maybe this big, 
Um, we had heard that there was a particularly impressive glacial erratic about 15 miles south of where this outcropping was. And uh, we went to go see it. It actually has a name, so you know it must be impressive. It's called the Madison Boulder. And we didn't know how big it was, but as we're going through the, the trees coming up down the path, we come around the corner, and this is what we see. <laughs> so that's Caleb walking there. Let's go to the next picture. This is a big rock. Doesn't belong there. Broke off of a mountain 15 miles to the north, carried on ice, and dropped there. Jesus says, on the big rock, I'm going to build my church. The next picture, this is a little closer to home. This is in Kentucky, Courthouse Rock in the Red River Gorge. And uh, that one didn't get transported on ice. It's just that everything around it got worn away. But that'd be fun to climb, wouldn't it? Yeah. On the big rock, Jesus says, I'll build my church. Jesus is not saying, you are Peter, and on you, the little rock, I'm going to build my church. So it's not Peter and the descendants that would be called popes. That's not what he's building his church on. You are little rock, and on big rock, I will build my church. So what is the big rock? What is the thing that Jesus is building his church on? It is the profession of faith, the true profession of faith that Peter just made that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is the truth of the gospel. Who is Jesus? And we learn later, because he hadn't done it at this point, what has he done? He's given his life for us as a ransom for our sins. He's risen from the grave to conquer sin and death. Who is Jesus? What has he done? The true profession of faith is the big rock on which the church is built. Who builds the church? Jesus says he builds the church. How is the church built? It's by him bringing individuals adopted into his family, grafted into the vine, people who were bound in their sins. He releases them from their sins. He causes them to be born again in him. He adopts them into their family. They become part of his church. That's how the church grows. That is done through hearing and understanding and responding rightly, repentance and faith, to the gospel message. Who is Jesus? What has he done? If we don't understand this, we won't understand what a church is, and we won't understand what Jesus is trying to get at in Matthew 18. Still in Matthew 16, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's exactly the same as two chapters later in Matthew 18. Jesus takes it to the next level. He talks about these keys to the kingdom. Is he saying, Peter, you get to decide who is a child of God. You get to decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That is not what he is saying. That would... That would it would be understandable if we interpreted it that way, just looking at that verse there. But two chapters later, Jesus expands this out to all of the disciples that he's talking to. And he's talking to them in the context of this future church. He's, he's applying it to the whole church. And that fits. If the church is built not on Peter, the person, 
But on Peter's confession, then that makes sense. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's the same words in Matthew 18. If you're reading this in an English version, most English versions will say it pretty similar to what I said there, and you won't be able to see the controversy, the the centuries-old question that is hidden in there. Some versions will translate it a little differently, and then you'll get a sense for the controversy. But the words there in the original Greek for binding and loosing are in a particular form. We would say it's the future perfect passive tense. Why does that matter? You did not come here for a grammar lesson in Greek. Well, in this case, it matters pretty significantly. Future, it's something out in the future. That makes sense. So when, when Jesus says they will be bound, they will be loosed, it's, it's a future thing. But perfect doesn't mean without sin. It means complete. It means it's done. It's accomplished. It has happened. So it's a past thing. So it's both a future and a past thing crammed together into a single verb. It has been accomplished. It is already true, and yet it's somehow in the future. And then it's also passive. So it's future, perfect, passive. Passive tells us that it's not us, or in this case, it's not Peter who's doing this. This is something that Peter's doing, and it's been done on behalf of him already by God. And so if, if we were to try to take this sense and, and maybe put it into a wording that more communicates what I think is being said here, it would be more along these lines. What you bind on earth shall already have been bound in heaven. You may be reading from a translation that actually words it that way. What you loose on earth shall already have been loosed in heaven. This is significant because Jesus is not saying to me or to you, you get to go around and say, yes, yes, no, 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 yes, 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 no, no, no. We're not choosing who is saved. We're not choosing who is in the kingdom of God, in the family of God. But somehow, mysteriously, we are partnered with God in this. The king of the universe As he grows his church in 16 and in 18, is intentionally inviting us, church members, to be playing active roles in this. Not just in the evangelism and the discipleship, but in the discipline of each other. This is a heavy thing. But just be amazed at it. The God of the universe invites you to be part of this. And Jesus says to Peter, and then he says to all the disciples in the context of talking about the church, so extending it all the way out to us, he says, what you bind on earth shall already have been bound in heaven. What you loose on earth shall already have been loosed in heaven. You are partnering with God trying to discern this most important thing about a person. You don't get to decide, you don't get to pick who is in the kingdom of God or not. But God gives you a role in that discernment process and then how you are to interact with that person. We don't save someone, but we are called to 
witness to them and be witnesses of their lives and to even, use the J word, to judge the fruit on the tree. This is a heavy thing. And I think that is exactly why Jesus, back in Matthew 18, ends this little passage by assuring us that he is with us. So he gives us specific instructions. Here's how you die. Here's how you deal with an errant, wandering brother. Just go do it. Private, backup, church. Consider him not part of the church. Then he goes into the details about the, you know, whatever you ask here is done by my Father in heaven, the binding, the loosing, all that stuff. And he ends it with, where two are gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. Jesus does not leave us alone in this. This scary, heavy thing that Jesus himself is asking us to do, he does not leave us alone. This is the high calling entrusted to the local church with a great weighty responsibility on it. We can't go to a bishop or a pope or a district supervisor and say, would you just deal with this? No, this is given to the local church. And Jesus promises to be with us in a special way while doing this. Jesus is inviting us into his work. He's inviting us to partner with him. The God of the universe is choosing to link arms with us and work through us and work on us in this process. What's he trying to accomplish? What's his goal here? His goal is the holiness of his people, the purity of his people, the Christ-likeness of his people. God wants his church to be holy, pure. We see this very clearly in 1 Peter. So again, Little Rock himself, writing decades later, says this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There's probably been different points in your life where you're like, I just wish I knew what the will of God was. Does he want me to take this job? Is it the will of God that I marry this person? What's God's will in this? And while those are good questions to ask, let me suggest to you that this passage answers the bigger question of what's the general purpose, the goal of my life? It is to be holy. What is God's overarching will in your life? It is for you to be holy. And I'd like to suggest that if we focus more on that overarching will of God, those smaller questions tend to fall in place. We are, we are walking in holiness with God. If we are walking closely with God in a Christ-like manner, it is His delight to lead us in the smaller things. As we've been going through this the last few weeks, if you've been tracking with us, maybe especially this week with the heavy stuff. I hope that you sense, that you feel God's call of holiness on your life. And if that's happening, it's happening through conviction. Right? Man, this has been happening to me so much as I've been working through these sermons the last few weeks. Hours reading and writing and, and studying and trying to figure things out. 
And the whole time, God just keeps coming back and showing me my own sinfulness, my foolishness, my, the, just the rebellion that still lives in my heart and the pride and the, just all that ugly stuff. He just keeps showing it to me. Why? Because his desire is to make me more holy. His desire is to make you more holy. And one of the God-ordained, designed side effects of the discipline process is as God sends us to lovingly and strongly discipline a brother, call him in repentance, of course God is going to work in us, showing us our own sin, humbling us, showing us where we need to repent. I hope that's been happening with all of you guys these last couple weeks too as we've wrestled through these things. So let me read this again. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Your old life, you were living ignorant of the one true God. You were driven by your passions. Leave that all behind. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And I just have to think, oh God, how, how far do we fall short in this? Even those of us who've been walking with you, Lord, for decades, we're still so quick to sin, so quick to rebel, so quick to stand in pride over somebody else who's sinning in a different way than we are. And Lord, please crush that in us. Give us a desire for your holiness and a hatred for our sin. Before we move on from this statement from Peter, we've got to recognize that, again, there's something that's kind of hidden in the English. There's a lot of plural in there that doesn't show up, obviously, to us in the English. And so if we were going to translate this, especially if we were going to go a little further south, we might say it like this. Y'all need to be obedient children. Don't y'all... Be sinfully passionate like you used to be. He who called y'all is holy. Y'all ought to be holy. In all y'all's conduct, be holy. It is written, y'all be holy, for I am holy. All of those yous are, are usins. They're plural. This is not Peter saying to us individually only, be holy because God is holy. This is him saying to us as a church, as a collective body, all y'all, be holy together as a church. God is holy. One final thought before we go to our Q&A time. As we've been working through these passages the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about what to do. If, you, if we understand what Jesus is saying is Matthew 18, we know what to do in that kind of a situation. The question really then is, are we willing to do it, and how do we do it? Not so much technique-wise, but attitude-wise. What's, what's the spirit, what's the heart, what's our attitude as we were to go and confront someone privately and take some backup and tell it to the church and treat them as a Gentile and tax collector and the binding and the loosing. Jesus is there with us. And what should our attitude be? 
Galatians 6.1 is a key passage to understanding this whole thing. The Apostle Paul says to the Galatian church, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, in any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him, and here's the attitude, in a spirit of gentleness. Now, this is not you rise up and you bully and you squash and you destroy the person. This is a spirit of gentleness, born of humility, recognizing God's call and holiness on our lives and how far we have fallen short. We now go with trembling in the presence of the holy God, and in gentleness we try to pull our our caught brother out of his transgression. You are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then here's a warning. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This is one of the main dangers of obeying Jesus in Matthew 18. If you recognize a brother who's caught in the sin and you go, maybe even go in a spirit of gentleness, but you are not on guard, you can find yourself tempted, maybe by the very same sin, tempted, and getting trapped yourself. One of the problems that we've had over the last few weeks has been gossip about things in the church. Sometimes we receive gossip and we're sucked into the trap because we're not on guard. So last week I told an an analogy story, a fictitious story in the sermon where I picked some names that have no connection to our church and I told a story about nothing that's going on in our church and by noon on Sunday, the gossip was going around that a particular person with a name was having an affair with another particular person whom I named with a fictitious name in the service. I got to tell you people, that's exhausting for me. I have no idea how that got started. We must be on guard. God is trying to rescue us, rescue our brothers from sin that has ensnared them, entrapped them. And if we are not on guard, we get ensnared by the same sin or a related sin in the process. So you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. There's so much at stake when we decide to obey what God has asked us to do in Matthew. Let's be on guard. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have John and Russell come up. We'll see what kind of questions we have for you guys. Father, thank you for these uh, hard, deep, challenging words, but thank you that uh, amazingly, you, you say them to us in, in invitation and in, in comfort. You tell us that you're with us as you commission us to do these hard things. Lord, even in Peter's challenge to us to, to be holy, for God is holy, there's still that, that beautiful grace and invitation where it says that he who called us is holy. Thank you, Lord, for calling us, for for saving us, for choosing us, for for dying on our behalf and inviting us into your family. Thank you. 
as we try to deal with these things, as we try to walk in obedience to your word, Lord, humble us, make us more holy, crush our sin, crush our pride, help us to walk in humility and in gentleness, and be on guard as we deal with these heavy things. In Jesus' name, amen.